0: Turn to Matthew chapter 26, please. We're going to enter into one of the most sacred, perhaps the most sacred, hour of Christ's life apart from the cross itself, and that is the Garden of Gethsemane. I never read this passage without um, just a sense of holy awe that I am being ushered into the presence of the Son of God in prayer. If you want to know a person's heart, I I suppose one of the best ways is to pray with them, and God has given us uh, in this passage uh, an example of his prayer as he did in John 17, and if you've never really studied John 17, that would be a blessing, but we're going to read verse uh, 36 to verse 45, so follow with me in your Bible, please. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Uh, Mark says he was sore amazed at this point. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Carry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Abba, Father, according to Mark. But he said, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, Luke says, if thou be willing, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep. Luke says, "...they were sleeping for sorrow, and said unto Peter, What could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again." for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And this is where Luke records that his sweat uh, fell, as, as it were, as great drops of blood to the ground. Then cometh he to the disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners, Arise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray us. Our Father in heaven, uh, we come before you tonight as needy people. We are hungry and we are needy and we are thirsty for the word of God, the spirit of God, the cross of Christ, an understanding of the heart of our Lord. I pray tonight that you would break up the fallow ground of our minds. Help us to put aside all things that would distract from this holy moment in the life of Christ. Guide our examination of what His cup really was and what ours really is. And Lord, I pray tonight that because we are nothing, we plant and we water, but he that planteth and watereth, it's not anything but God that giveth the increase. Because we are nothing, we, without thee we need thee tonight. Because we, can, we have nothing apart from the Holy Spirit. And I sense that tonight, Lord, because I, my friends have come to me on their journey and I have nothing to set before them. And if you don't give us the bread of the Holy Spirit, This is a waste of our time. And Lord, we can do nothing without Christ. With men, this is impossible what we're attempting tonight. With men, it is impossible what we attempt as Christians every day, but not with Christ, for with Christ, all things are possible. And so do a work tonight that is so supernatural, there's no explanation for it in every heart. And help us, Lord, to be tender and open to your word. In Christ's name, amen. When I first started counseling years ago, it was not uncommon for people to come to me and they they would say, "Uh, well, Brother Benny, what's your success rate in counseling? Now that may reveal more about the questioner than the counselor. Anybody who goes to a pastor or biblical counselor and says, what's your success rate? is admitting they are depending on you to change them. It's a very dangerous thing. But my answer to them is this, and I say this often, if you come with a humble um, spirit, and you come with a teachable and a humble will, you will make progress. But a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And perhaps one of the greatest problems that Christians face and that we all face and and certainly I face in my counseling is people who come with a resistant will. And can I tell you that you can can be sitting here tonight and you can have a will that is resistant to God under the very best of preaching. He that being often reproved and hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. You can go to the best Christian school, you can go to the best church, you can sit under the best Bible teacher, and you can leave that place and go back home and still have a resistant will. You can have a will that is opposed to God even in the midst of ministry. And many will say to, the, to, to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and Then will I profess unto them I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That phrase uh, troubled me for a long time. Ye that work iniquity. How is it possible that casting out devils in Jesus' name is iniquity? How is it possible that feeding the poor in Jesus' name, doing many wonderful works in thy name, is iniquity? How is it possible that prophesying in Jesus' name, preaching, soul winning, and singing and so forth in Jesus' name is iniquity. And finally I realized, because the will of that person is not fully surrendered to the finished work of Christ on the cross, and they are saying, this is my way to get to heaven. That will is hardened against God in the midst of ministry. We can have a will that is resistant to God and not even realize it. Some call, according to James chapter 1, some call evil good and good evil. A man one time in counseling uh, attacked his wife verbally, emotionally, right in front of me. And I had to stop him. And I have a policy in my counseling that i don't I don't mind if you express your feelings as long as, they're not, as there's not too much feeling in your expression. <laughs> I don't mind if you say I'm angry, but I don't want you to swear and throw things as they have done to me by the way I have had things have you have you had things thrown at you brother Bill um, but this man was just he just dumped all over his wife and I said I said why did you do that? He said because I'm honest. Now here's a man with a hardened will but he doesn't know he has a hardened will. He's calling evil good and so I reminded him lovingly I hope yes the bible does say a fool speaketh his whole mind. But The point is that that we can can have this and and pride ourselves in in, in having this will. I want you to turn to James. Keep your finger here. We're coming back, but turn to the book of James. And uh, I want you to see some of the characteristics of a person that has a hardened will. Very common. We see them all the time. And you may recognize yourself as we look at this. First of all, in chapter 4, uh, God's word says, "From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? A sign of a hardened will is division in relationships. Can I remi- remind every married couple here and every person here? The only reason that there are divisions in relationships is because of a hardened will. We call it pride, but only Proverbs thirteen ten. Only by pride cometh contention. Only by pride. A couple came to me that had, had spent over $60,000 in lockdown psychiatric wards with numerous psychiatrists because they couldn't get along with each other. And they came in and they sat down the first session. I said, I know the problem. They said, you know the problem. I said, I do. You know the problem after one session. That's right. We have spent thousands of dollars on psychiatrists and they couldn't tell us a problem. And you're going to tell us what the problem is. I said, that's right. What's the problem? And I had them turn to Proverbs 13.10. Only by pride cometh contention. That kind of cuts to the chase, doesn't it? Cuts to the fat. And by the way, that's a great blessing of biblical counseling biblical counseling, uh, ask the what questions, not the why questions. And certainly this is one of the what questions. What are you going to do about your pride? And so there is a division in relationships. Verse 2, ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. There's also a denial of desires. So you lust and you, and you desire to have, but you have not. That's an evidence that a person has a will that's set against God. There's a denial of personal desires. And then look at uh, verse 2 again. Uh, Ye ask and receive not. Verse 3. Ye ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume uh, consume it upon your lust. Uh, There is a disappointment in prayer in people who have a will that's set against God. They ask and they ask and they wonder, why don't I get my prayers answered? And many times it's because your will is in opposition to God's will. And then in verse 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And so there there is a devotion to the world and a distance from God that people are not even aware of. It was a shock to me, and really in just the last few years, when I came to realize, uh, and I believe that the upper level, or the deeper level, let's put it that way, the deeper level of understanding uh, our forgiveness with God, and our relationship to God, is when we come to God and confess not just what we have done, And not just agreeing with God that what we have done is a sin, but when we come to God and we confess how we've hurt Him. I have had a lot of people cry tears in my counseling room about their unhappiness, their regrets, their pains, their loss, their unhappiness. But I have never had a person cry because they hurt their God. When was the last time you cried over the pain you caused your God? God says you love the world, you're my enemy. God says if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. God said to David, you despise me. That's why you committed adultery and murder. You despise me. Crawl inside the heart of God. God and feel His pain, understand what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit of God, and you will begin to get an idea of how hard your will has been that you have never considered it. By the way, that distance from God is very real. But can I add this as well before we move on because there's a point to this? I don't believe we will ever understand the the truth about God unless our will is yielded to Him. Jesus said in John chapter 7 and verse 17, If ye will do His will, ye shall know of the doctrine. If ye will do His will, ye shall know of the doctrine. In other words, all you seekers of truth and all of us who want to understand the Bible... God has a very high standard before He opens the door of revelation and illumination to us, and that is this. Are we coming to that door with a yielded will and a teachable spirit, or are we coming with our prejudicial misdirection because we have got it all figured out, we've got God in our little box, we have theology uh, uh, completely under control, now God uh, uh, revealed to me within the scope of what I know, what I want to know more. If he will do his will, you shall know of the doctor. Well, the truth is that many people do have a very hardened will. In fact, it's the most common thing that I face in my counseling, I have to say. And so how how do we overcome that? You know, in this prayer, you will notice three prayers that Jesus made. And I want you to notice that there's a progression here. In verse, uh, let's see, let's start. The verse 39. O oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, let me read to you how Mark put it in the Gospel of Mark. Abba, Father, this is Mark 14, 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou, uh, what thou wilt. Do you understand what he's saying? Uh, Christ is coming uh, to this cross, and Christ is looking at this cup. We're going we're to examine that cup in a little bit, but I will tell you this. Christ had a struggle. And according to Hebrews chapter 5, uh, he learned, or he, he was perfected, uh, by what he learned, I'll, I'll show you that in a moment. But there is a concession here. But it's you hate to word use the word reluctant, but it's hesitant. He's looking into this cup and he's saying, "Father, all things are possible under the take away this cup from me." And then you can hear the change of his tone. Nevertheless. Not what I will, but what Thou will. But then look at the next prayer. In verse 42, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, Thy will be done. There's a growing conformity now, meaning this, that as He goes through these prayers and He goes through the suffering and He goes alone into the garden, His will is being softened more and more. His will is being yielded more and more. He is growing on a series of steps of perfection through His obedience and His yielding to what He knows to be the will of God. Understand that this is God, but this is man. And He is showing us His manly struggle with His godly responsibility by the struggle He has with the cup. And he goes away again. And he prays again. And when he comes back, I want you to read with sensitivity the change of the tone of his voice. Now watch this, verse 45. Verse 44, he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Now this is when he bled as it were great drops of blood, and this is when there appeared unto him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, according to Luke, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now understand that the pressure is building within Christ so intensely. It is reaching such a critical mass, his organs are breaking down. His organs are breaking down. This is a rare medical condition that under intense pressure, then it began to push the blood through his veins. With such pressure, they fell to the ground as not drops of blood, great drops of blood. He's going to an agony. He's going to a wrestling match. He's going to, to, to pain and suffering all because of that cup. What a horrible thing this must be. And all of us have to go, I I fear, uh, many times through our lives, we have to go through a process of learning. I have learned in whatsoever state I am there with to be content. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 5 for just a moment. What the uh, the Bible says about this moment in the life of Christ. Verse 7, chapter 5. Who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto God that was able to save him from death. That's Gethsemane. He's crying out to God to spare him from death and he was heard in that he feared. Now watch verse 8. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. That is an amazing statement about our Lord. Though He were a son, yet learned He obedience by the things which He suffered. And I believe that's a direct reference to that progression of prayer as He moves through those three expressions of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Look back to chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 10. For it became Him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. You see, the the way that the 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 path that Jesus had to take in order to drink that cup was suffering. So the question before us today, and and the question that theologians have entertained for centuries, really, is what is the cup? Well, I, I, I think it helps us if we look at what it is not. Turn to Isaiah, if you would, chapter 53. There's some people say, well, the cup was physical suffering. Everybody knows that because he had to suffer so much. In fact, he did suffer. If you look at chapter 52 and verse 14, the Bible says "As of Isaiah, As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And then look at chapter 53, verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Verse 8, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And so let's understand that by the time they finished with Jesus, He was not recognizable as a human being, that He was despised and rejected. He was wounded, bruised, had stripes, and was stricken for our sins. And people have said, well, you see, that, that is a unique suffering that a uh, Christ suffered that no man has ever suffered. Well, I, I don't know if you've read Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you have never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, that that is a classic and you should read it because it will drive you to your knees. All throughout history, people have suffered for the cause of Christ and and, and physically they have suffered as much as Christ suffered, sometimes more. So we can't say that the cup was just his physical suffering. I, I think it included it, but that wasn't the cup. So some people say, well, his cup was emotional suffering. Look at verse 9. Well, let's start in verse 10, rather. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. And and by the way, that means it gave joy to God to see the atonement accomplished by Christ. Don't read that as some type of a cruel ogre bending over the battlements of heaven laughing at his son's suffering. That's not what that means. It pleased him to give to us, to mankind, the gift of forgiveness and atonement through his suffering. But when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, in verse 11, he shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Verse 12, he hath poured out his soul unto death. Now, why the why the triple emphasis on the soul you know most of what we hear about the suffering of Christ has to do with the physical suffering and there's no question that he did suffer uh, I, I think sometimes that um, we don't have an exact record of all the things that Jesus suffered because uh, uh, we would probably focus on that like Mel Gibbs uh, Mel uh, Gibson is it did it in the Passion of the Christ. All the focus was on the physical suffering. The uh, exit interviews of the movie theaters around the world when that movie came out, The Passion of the Christ, the exit interviews revealed one common question among all moviegoers that was never answered. Why did he have to suffer like that? So all Mel Gibson did was show the suffering of Christ without explaining why why he suffered. That's That doesn't accomplish the purpose of God. But this this emotional suffering, this soulful suffering. Can I suggest something to you? Without the soul suffering, the crucifixion would never have been complete. Because if only his body had suffered, he would only have died for a body. But because he suffered for the body and he suffered for the soul, he died for the whole man. He had to suffer emotionally. And oh, how he suffered. The words he describes, he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. That word, sorrowful, is a deep depression, a wounded spirit. It's a grief that presses in from all sides and leaves no place for defense. It's a complete consumption of the spirit to the exclusion of every relieving thought. It's one thing to suffer and have hope that this will end. Jesus did not have that hope. It's one thing to suffer and know oh, I could get through this, or there's a way to stop this. He, had not, he did not have that hope. This is the sorrow he, uh, he was expressing. He was very heavy, which is a heaviness unto death. According to Goodwin, not extensive so as to die, but intensive that if he had died, he could not have suffered more. Exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. And he's talking about this, ladies and gentlemen. His sorrow, his depression, his despondency was so deep, he was right at the edge of death. And that's why he cried out to God, as recorded in Hebrews chapter 5, that God would keep him from death. We have no idea of the weight and the pain and the grief and the sorrow that Jesus was experiencing as He looked at the, 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 the coming uh, 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 incorporation of sin into Him. That God was going to reach out with one hand into history past and with one another hand into eternity future and with one gargantuan effort He was going to compress all of the sin of all Man, every sin of every age, even our present. And He was compressed and compressed. And He was going to make Jesus to become sin. Listen to me. Jesus did not just die for sin. Jesus did not just die because of sin. Jesus died as sin. He became sin. Sin. And the thought of it overwhelmed him. The thought of it said, make him say, I'm exceeding sorrowful even unto death. I'm entirely immersed in woe. I'm encompassed with grief. I'm encircled in pain and I'm overwhelmed with despair. And that brought him to agony. Luke 22 says he was in agony. Agony is a loathing aversion mixed with a despondency for the future. It's an agitation of spirit accompanied by quaking of the body. This is supreme grief and anguish. He suffered emotionally. Now, let me ask a question here. Why was this necessary? Well, he came to suffer for the whole man. But it goes beyond that. Because you see, if we are crucified with Christ, and we are, and if we are to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings, and if we are to be conformable unto his death, why do we at all cost Avoid all emotional suffering. Does emotional suffering have a place in the life of a Christian? I was asked in a counseling seminar one time, Brother Benny, does a spirit-filled person ever get depressed? I had no answer except to say, look at Christ in the garden. Was he depressed? Oh, he was depressed like no one has ever been depressed. Yes, he was in despondency, he was in despair, he was in depression to the point of dying. Now, here's here's an interesting sidelight of that. As I was reading through the Gospels, I noticed that when they offered Jesus Jesus, uh, vinegar and myrrh, he wouldn't drink it. But when they offered him vinegar... Alone, he drank it, right? Why? Well, I went way, I went back in all the medical books and every, everything I could find all the way back to find out what is vinegar and myrrh. What is vinegar and gall? Here's what I found out. It's a soap it. It's an elixir. It's a mixture, uh, it's a cocktail, if you please, of a pain deadening, emotional altering drug. For the person who goes to the cross, there was a group of women in Jerusalem called the Daughters of Jerusalem who fulfilled Proverbs 31, give strong drink unto him that perisheth. And strong drink unto him that perisheth included vinegar and myrrh or vinegar and gall for two reasons to dumb down the physical suffering, to dumb down the emotional suffering. In other words, Jesus refused to dumb down His suffering because He knew that the cross had to be suffering. But what do we do? Pharmaceutical companies have made millions and billions upon the driving desire of every person, even Christians, to never have any emotional suffering. When my wife, uh, Sandra, died, we have been married 42 years. I'm a grief counselor. I counsel people in in, in grief, and I, I know the steps, and I know what is entailed, but I had never experienced it. And then in a seven-year period, uh, my, I'm trying to remember the order, my father died, my mother died, my brother died, my wife died, and my son was sentenced to death. In a one-half-hour period, I learned that my mother was dying and my son was going to die. And when my wife, who was the end of all of that, when my wife died, I went into an agony of grief that I have never known. I went to the uh, beach house, and I rented a beach house. And uh, <laughs> someone asked me, what are you going to do that now that your wife is dead and gone to heaven? And I said, well, I'm going to go grow a beard and a ponytail. And I'm going to go to the beach and I'm going to get a dog and I'm going to be an evangelist to the surfers. Well, I went to the beach for two months, but basically all I did was lie on my side and sob and cry until my stomach cramped. That was my day. My night was filled with regrets about what I shouldn't have done or said or what I should have done and said. I cannot imagine, now, I cannot imagine, uh, or I can't imagine, perhaps I should say, what it's like to go through grief. Jesus went through that for the same reason He puts us through it. Blessed be the God of all comfort who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort others with the comfort wherewith we're comforted of God. What God was doing was putting me through a graduate school to understand the deeper level of grieving that people go through to have a deeper ministry. And my friend, the deeper your suffering, the deeper your comfort, the deeper your comfort, the deeper your ministry. Many people never get to the place of ministry because of their misery. They're so focused on their misery and their unhappiness. But Jesus would not do that. He would not cut short his suffering. Because he knew that emotional suffering was part of this. But let me suggest something else to you that the cup was not. The cup was not just physical suffering, although part of it. The cup was not just emotional suffering, although part of it. But the cup also was not social suffering, although part of it. Now, I want you to look at Isaiah for a minute. And uh, I want you to think about this social suffering. Look at verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men. Now why did God put that statement in there? He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. He surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him smitten, stricken of God, and uh, smitten of God and afflicted. He's despised. You understand this? Cursed is he that hangeth on the cross. And so our starting point here has to be the the, the, the realization that Christ loved his neighbor as himself, not holy, not formally, but he had an intense love, and he loved to have friends. Jesus said, I call you not servants, but friends. I've written a chapter in my book that's coming out, should pastors have friends in the church? Of course they should. Some people have this notion, well, a pastor should never have friends in the church. Well, Jesus wouldn't understand that because he had friends, he loved people, he loved being around people, and he wanted that love reciprocated. And it was not easy, therefore, to be isolated from them, to be condemned by the religious establishment, to be deemed an embarrassment by his family, to have the multitudes crying for his blood. It must have been a horrible thing that he goes to the cross, and one person betrays him, another denies him, all forsake him, And there He is at the foot of the cross, and the only people there are five women. All the people He has healed and all the people He has loved turned their back on Him. You don't think that hurt Him? This was an awful suffering for Christ. But as bad as that was, I don't think it was social suffering. Now look at verse 6 of Isaiah 53. The Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all, Look at verse 8. For the transgressions of my people was he stricken. Look at verse uh, 11. He shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12. He bear the sin of many. This is spiritual suffering. And now I think we're getting a whole lot closer to what the cup is. For Christ, the cup certainly was the anger of God against sin. For Christ... The cup was the judgment of God against sin, but I think there's, there's a simple way that we can understand what the cup is, and that's by asking two questions. The first question is, what did Christ prize more than anything else? What did He value more than anything? Do we know what that is? Second question, when did He cry out on the cross? Now, for the answer to the first question, I want you to turn to John chapter 17. What was most important to Christ? Well, we see in his prayer, as he prayed for his disciples, and he prayed for us, those who were to come, he said in verse 11, that that they may be one as we are. In verse 20, he says, Neither pray I for these alone, that is, the disciples, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that's you and I, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. Verse 22, that they may may be one even as we are one. You see, from the beginning of time, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There's an indivisibility. There is a There is a continuity of fellowship. There is an ongoing identification. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And I want you to be one with each other like the Father and I are one as one. This was the most valuable thing to Christ. This oneness with the Father. But the Bible says that God hath made him to become sin for us. And the Bible also says that thou art a pure eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Habakkuk 1.13. And now, Christ has become sin. And now, for the first time in history, God turns his back. Shuts the door of fellowship and access because he cannot look at his son. And now, for the first time, he cries out. He didn't cry out when they pulled his beard out. He didn't cry out when they whipped him with the cat of nine tails. He didn't cry out uh, when they put the th- a crown of thorns on his head and beat it into his scalp. He didn't cry out when all of his bones were uh, out of joint. As a sheep before his shears is dumb, and he opened not his mouth. He never said a word to all that. But when did he cry out? He cried out when he realized the moment has come that God is turning his back on me. And for the first time in history, ladies and gentlemen, he did not call God his Father. He did not say, my Father, my Father, why hast thou forsaken me? He says, my God, my God, because he cannot call him Father. They are not one. They are not in fellowship. They are not. They don't have the closeness. In my estimation, that was the cup. It was the thing He valued more than anything else. And it was revealed when He cried out for the first time. Now, it includes judgment and anger and all that. But more important for our discussion tonight is what is your cup? Because we're talking about a yielded will. You say, well, Brother Benny, I don't have... There's nothing between the Lord and myself. I know of nothing. Nothing. But let's examine that a little bit. I'm going to give you some characteristics of what an unyielded will looks like. What a struggling will looks like. First of all, it's a governing value which controls you. A governing value, not a value, a governing value. Hiram Smith wrote a book some time ago called Ten Secrets of Successful Time Management a great book, I hope to read someday when I get time, (laughs) but in in this book he tells the story of uh, going to a seminar and trying to demonstrate to an audience of about 3,000 people what a governing value is. We have to make a distinction between our our values and our governing values. So he called a young lady up who he happened to know was a mother. And he asked her about her little girl, and she had a precious little girl, and and she said how much she loved this little girl. And he said, you'd do anything for that little girl, wouldn't you? And she said, yes. He said, okay, let's imagine, and this was back before 9-11. Let's imagine that I come to your house with a 100-foot I-beam. That's a steel beam that if you were to cut it in half, it looks like a capital I. I'm going to put this 100-foot I-beam on the street in front of your house. You're going to stand at one end of the I-beam. I'm going to stand at the other end of the I-beam, and I'm going to ask you to walk that I-beam. Now, if I ask you to walk that I-beam, and I said, I'll give you $15, would you walk the I-beam? She said, sure. He said, okay. Let's take the I-beam to the World Trade Center. And we're going to bolt one end of that 100-foot I-beam to Tower 1 and the other end to Tower 2. It's a windy day. There's a 40-foot sway factor at the top as the the building bends 40 feet one way and then the other in the wind. There's no net. You're on Tower 1, I'm on Tower 2, and I'm going to say to you, Okay, I'll give you $15 if you'll walk the I-beam. And he said to the girl, would you walk the I-beam? She said, no. He said, how about $1,000? No, and he kept taking the price up. How about a million dollars? And she said, no. And then he said, I'm holding your little girl by her heels. And I'm holding her over the edge of the tower. If you don't walk that I-beam, I'm going to drop your little girl. Will you walk the I-beam? And right there in front of 3,000 people, she broke down in tears because he identified her governing value. A governing value is something that controls you. A governing value is something that keeps you from drinking the cup. A governing value is something, that one thing that's between you and God, that controls you, that you will not let go of, thinking you control it, but it's controlling you. Secondly, a cup is a point of resistance which hinders you. Now, you remember the story of the uh, rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and he said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Go and sell all that thou hast, give it to the poor. Now, he doesn't say that to everybody that he witnessed to or spoke to about eternal life, but he did, he did select those very words for that man because he knew this point of resistance that was between the rich young ruler and himself. He put his finger on it like a laser uh, like a laser beam exactly on the thing between the rich young ruler and himself, and he said, you've got to sell all you have and give it to the poor. That's what's between you and me. And he went away sorrowing because he had great riches. But then go to Luke chapter 15 and the story of the prodigal son. Remember him? He had great riches. He lost them all. He lost his friends. He lost his reputation. He lost his pride. He was feeding the hogs and he came to himself and he said, I will arise and go into my father's house. Now what's the difference between the rich young ruler and the prodigal son. One yielded at his point of resistance, the prodigal son, and one resisted at his point of resistance. Many people do not return to the Father. Many people do not become Christians because there's one thing they will not give up. At our church in Michigan years ago, a 16-year-old girl... Uh, came forward. She was weeping and sobbing so hard that uh, we had to take her aside. In fact, I took her aside into a counseling room. And uh, I went through the plan of salvation. And I said, now, uh, do you understand that uh, you're a sinner? And she says, yes, tears just rolling down her face. Do you understand that price of sin is death and hell? Yes, you understand you cannot pay for your own sin? Yes. Do you understand that Christ has paid for your sin? Yes. Do you understand that by putting your trust and faith in Christ's completed work on the cross, you can be saved? And she's still sobbing uncontrollably. Yes. And I said, do you understand that you can put your trust and faith in Christ today? And she said, yes. And I said, would you like to be saved today? And she said, no. And I said, why? And listen to me, young people. I have a boyfriend. And if I get saved, I'll lose my boyfriend. She left that day without being saved. Three months later, her boyfriend broke up with her. And today, years later, as far as I know, she's still lost. Point of resistance. And so... A cup for Jesus was a governing value that controlled him. That was his fellowship with the Father. A cup for Jesus uh, 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 was a point of resistance that hindered him. He had to face that. The third thing about a cup is it's a struggle which challenges you. Now, many people have, uh, have struggles that challenge you, but they won't drink that cup. Uh, uh, Before I was saved, you you, you may not know this about me, but when I was 16 years old, um, my parents were terribly ignorant. And I was exceptionally bright. (laughs) And um, being the bright young man that I was, I took it upon myself to run away from home. Quit school, uh, ran away from home. Uh, joined a gang, more or less, not, not a bad bad gang, but not a good gang. And um, I, I decided I, I'm i going to live my own life. Bought a car. I mean, I was the king of the road. Problem was, I didn't have enough money, and so I had to find some way of supplementing my income. So I became a thief. I was a very good thief, if there is such a thing. <laughs> the thing is there such a thing as a good thief? Uh I, I, I'm I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I would stand in front of a cash register and engage the cashier in conversation and joke with her while I filled my pockets with candy bars and whatever was in front of the cash register. I went into a store with an empty gym bag, came out with it full. I went into a clothing store and came out with three or four pair of pants that I was wearing and four or five shirts. Sounds good, doesn't it? I I had all the money I needed. I had all the clothes I needed. I had all the food I needed. I stole all the food. I needed and then something happened to ruin everything. I got saved. <laughs> now, what do I do? Every night I go to bed and I think about those people I robbed. But I, I, I wasn't going to go to them and tell them I robbed them. That's embarrassing. But Paul says, herein do I exercise myself to have a conscience always void of offense toward God and toward man. And so after months of struggling, I'm 17 years old. I put on a shirt and a tie. I take my list of all the stores that I have robbed and I start out on a Saturday morning and I go to every store and I ask to see the manager and I look him in the eye and I tell him, I've been robbing you blind. And this is how much I think that I owe you. And if you will help me and work it out, I will pay you back even if it takes time. Every one of them said, oh, son, don't worry about that. Insurance is already taking care of that. But i got to ask you a question. Why are you doing this? Time after time, all day Saturday, I gave my testimony about how I had been saved to these unsaved managers, except one who wanted my money. And I knew he was as big a crook as I was because now he got the insurance money and he got my money. But I want to tell you, when I walked out that last door, I, my feet didn't touch the ground. Everything's alright in my father's house. But for the longest time, this was a struggle which challenged me. I would not drink the cup. Remember 9-11... There was a story of a Christian girl in the, one of the towers that had been witnessing to all of her office mates. And when the word came down uh, over the PA of what had happened, uh, the announcer said, go into the elevator. And so all these girls were around her, including one girl named Cassie. Now, she's been witnessing to Cassie for months. But Cassie's favorite expression was, I'm not ready to get on that bus yet. That that was her way of saying, I don't want to make that decision. I'm not ready to get on that bus. So the day came of 9-11, and they said, get on the elevator. And when she started to step on that elevator, uh, she was stopped, and she put her arms out and stopped all the girls and said, don't get on that elevator, let's go down the steps. And they got down the steps, and just as they got out of the front the building came down and they, had, they were far enough away they weren't damaged but they looked for shelter. They didn't know what was going on. They thought they were under attack. They thought it was the end of the war. They thought this was World War III. The only shelter they found was a bus. All the tires flattened, all the windows broken but at least it was intact and they got on the bus and this Christian girl knowing this is the last time I'll ever be able to witness to Cassie under one of the seats of the bus. Gave her the plan of salvation, and there on the bus, (laughs) she trusted Christ as her Savior. But until then, it was a struggle for her. It may be a barrier which isolates you. You understand? If you'll go back to Matthew chapter 26, verse 36, Then cometh Jesus with them. Verse 37, and he he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And verse 38, tarry here and watch with me. Verse 40, could you not watch with me? Now, the cup in this sense is, is a barrier, if you please, that isolates you, in this case, in Christ's case, from God and from man. But when you drink the cup, my friend, it is a solo effort. You can take people with you into the garden, but no one will carry your burden. No one will understand your pain. No one will identify with your despair. Nobody can enter into what you're suffering because of their own struggle. You may have to go deep into the recesses of the garden before you ever come to making the decision. Nobody can make it with you. Nobody can make it for you and nobody can stop you. But you're isolated. There's a barrier between them or other people and yourself. Understand this. The closer you get to the cross, the thinner the crowd gets. Mark it down. If you have to have your friends around you, if you have to have your peers around you, if you have to have human support to do by divine will of God, you will never drink the cup. It's a solo effort. In the beginning of Christ's ministry, when He healed, and, he, and when He fed, and when He performed miracles, there were so many, He had no leisure so much as to eat. That's the sustenance crowd. As long as He fed them, as long as He healed them, and gave them sustenance, they loved Him. But out of that crowd, few there be that find it. Now this is the salvation crowd. This is much smaller. The crowd's getting smaller. Out of that, there was the serving crowd. The 70 disciples. The 12 disciples. Smaller. And then out of that, the sacrificial crowd... And how many of those masses of people were standing beside the cross? One man. It's strange to me and convicting to me that we are told to pray for the power of his resurrection, and we do. But how many of us pray for the fellowship of his sufferings? And yet that's what God tells us to do. And I might add also, the cup for Jesus was a ministry which eluded Him. It wasn't until, the Bible says, for the joy that was set before Him. Now this is what sustained Jesus through this whole thing. Because cursed is He that hangeth on a tree. He's rejected of men. He's had to drink this cup. He's hanging on the cross. And why did He do all this? For the joy that was set before Him. What joy? The joy of the resurrection. The joy of millions of people being saved. The joy of doing the will of the Father. The joy of drinking the cup in obedience to God. For the joy that was set before Him. He had to look beyond the cross. He had to realize, yes, I have to drink the cup. I have to go to the cross. And then there's a crown. We don't get a crown without the cup. We don't get a crown without the cross. Jesus drank the cup, went to the cross, and then He adds a crown. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father today. But can I also tell you that drinking the cup is a surrender which blesses you. If you'll notice in verse 45, the word then. Then cometh Jesus to His disciples. His whole tone changes and He says, Sleep on now and take your rest the hours at hand. He has reached the point of total consecration. Not concession, not conformity, consecration. He's not doing it because He has to do it. He's not struggling with whether I should drink it or not. He has come to the place, I want to do this. Complete consecration because of that he went to the cross and aren't you glad he did I met Pastor Bill the first time at a prayer advance in Virginia am I not right brother Bill that's where we first met right yeah (laughs) it was a momentous time for you wasn't it brother (laughs) well trust me on this uh Uh, We were, uh, I think, preaching together at a prayer advance and um, I don't know if it was that prayer advance or another, but I preached on this message and uh, I think it was the night before the last night of the conference. And uh, I said I made this statement in that sermon and I, I, I don't know why I made it, but it probably fits this audience as well. There may be someone here tonight who is struggling with drinking your cup. And death and life may hang in the balance. Because if you don't drink this cup, something tragic could happen. I think that was maybe Wednesday night. Thursday night, a man came up to me after the service, a big man, former Marine bulky, muscular man. He told me his name. He said, I haven't been saved that long, but he said, I'm retired from the Marine Corps. And he said, "Uh, I have trusted Christ as my Savior and I have grown in grace. And the pastor made me the leader of the group who came to this conference. I organized it. I got everybody here. But he said, Brother Benny, he said, I got to tell you something that My whole life was uh, ruined by sin. I lived in sin. I lived for sin. Every kind of sin. Any sin I could commit, I reveled in it. My life was a waste. I was immoral. I was profligate, promiscuous, adulterer, fornicator, drug user, alcoholic, you name it. I dove in. But after I got out of the Marine Corps, I met a guy, and he told me about Christ. And he said, I trusted Christ as my Savior. And I want you to know that I am a new creature. He said, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. But something happened since then. And he said, when I came out of the Marine Corps, I met a beautiful Christian girl, and we got married, and I had a little girl. And he said, she was the joy of my life. He said, Brother Benny, I made a decision before God that I would protect that little girl from the slightest taint of what I went through. My little girl was going to go to the altar representing the color of her dress honestly. My little girl was going to grow up pure. And sure enough, she went to Sunday school And she went to vacation Bible school and she went to Christian camp and she trusted Christ as as their Savior at an early age. And then she surrendered to be a missionary. And I sent her off to Christian college. He said, That was just, that wasn't too long ago. And then I got word that a young man in that college put a date rape drug in her coke, on a date, and raped her. He said, everything I dreamed of for her. Every hope I had for my little girl was gone because of a punk kid controlled by his hormones. He said, I made a decision. He said, I went and got a gun. And um, I bought that gun with the full intention of going and finding that boy and killing him. But he said, the pastor came to me and asked me to be the leader of this group. He said, so I couldn't kill him before I, you know, I couldn't kill him and then go to church, so... He said, I decided, I gave my gun to a friend. I said, keep this for me with full intention of coming back from this conference and getting that gun and going and kill that boy. And then you preached that stupid message on the cup last night. And he, started, he literally started to shake and sob and cry. I, I never seen a grown man quiver like that and shake like he did. And he said, I want to thank you because I have made a decision to drink the cup and not kill that boy. I can do no less than my Christ. I've got to be obedient. I hate to think what would have happened if he had not heard that message. And I hate to think what might happen if you, knowing you have a cup to drink, will not drink it. Because all you can think about is your loss and your pain and your regret and your unhappiness you will not let go of something because uh, this is something you clung to. And it could be anything. And I know that feeling. I I was angry at my father for years. I didn't even know I was angry. I know what it means to let go. I know how important it is to to, to realize that that, that what I'm hanging on to is hurting me. And I can't, uh, I, 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 I think I wasted many years because I held on to that. I don't know if I told you this story. I'll tell it then we'll close. About a little boy went with his mother to go furniture shopping. Went into a very exclusive furniture store. I, know, I mean, exclusive like Michigan Avenue, Rodeo Drive. One hundred fifty thousand dollars for a set of a dresser with of drawers, and everything was over the top. And the little five-year-old boy wandered off. And he finally came up to his mother, and he had a vase stuck on his hand. And uh, she looked at the price tag, and it was $15,000. And he comes up to his mom. And she said, son, what are you doing? He says, mama, it won't come off. And she said, what do you mean? He said, I tried, Mommy, it won't come off. Look, it won't come off. And she tugged on it, it wouldn't come off. And they called the manager, who almost fainted. Put soap on it, water on it, oil on it, and it would come off. And finally, they did the only thing they can do. She took a hammer and she broke that $15,000 vase into a thousand pieces. And when they did, they found the little boy's hand double up in a fist. And his mother said, Son, has your hand always been in a fist? And he says, Yeah, Mama. And she said, Why? And he opened his hand to show her a brand new shiny copper penny. I didn't want to lose my penny, Mama. It's just like a lot of Christians, they wrap their hand, their memory around some tawdry event of the past that they won't let go and all around them damage and destruction and despair, but they go to the grave hanging on because they won't drink the cup. What is your cup, my friend? What is your cup? What is the governing value that controls you? What's the point of resistance that challenges you? What is that thing that separates you, agonizes you, that you won't let go? Well, I will tell you this. It's a ministry that is eluding you, and it's a joy that is escaping you. But the moment you drink the cup for the joy that is set before you, you will find that there will be untold blessings of God and there will be eternal fruit as a result of that decision. If you'll drink the cup. Would you bow your head, please, and close your eyes? Father in heaven, I pray that you would take this message about the Lord Jesus. I pray that He would be uppermost in our hearts and our minds. I pray that in no way... That we may reflect upon our precious Lord. But may He be glorified. May we see the cross in a new light. May we see the love of God in a new light. May we see the love of Christ in His drinking of the cup. Now I pray you would be with the pastor, the shepherd of this flock, give him wisdom as he guides the service, the invitation, give him the words to say, and be glorified in all this. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285.